Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor at Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 because we're going to do some treasure hunting today. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to do verses 1 through 11. I know it's a pretty ambitious chunk of Scripture, but I think we're going to get through it okay. Philippians chapter 3. Let me tell you a story while you're turning there. It's a guy named Mel Fisher. He had a great 64th birthday. See, Fisher was a treasure hunter, and he'd been looking for a Spanish galleon called Nuestra Señora de Atocha for 17 years. The ship which was loaded with precious cargo, sank in the year 1622 during a hurricane while it was on its maiden voyage from Havana to Spain. And on a July day just before his birthday, Fisher discovered the ship, the ship rather, and its treasure about 40 miles west of Key West, Florida. Divers brought up an estimated 150 pounds of gold, including 76 gold bars, gold chains, gold discs. In addition to this find, more than 900 silver bars were recovered. In fact, the ship's fortune contained an estimated treasure of about $340 million. Y'all, finding a treasure like that is mind-boggling. I mean, there's something enticing about discovering precious treasure. I think that's why we enjoy stories in in movies like National Treasure or the, the Indiana Jones films. But you see, in a very real sense, in a more philosophical sense, we're all treasure hunters. All mankind is hunting some sort of treasure that they think is going to bring them peace and security. Now, you know, not not lost gold or, you know, not the dial of destiny or even the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, There's a greater treasure that's waiting to be found, greater than silver or gold. Treasure that isn't in a bank vault, treasure that doesn't need to be protected from thieves who would steal it. And while some people are hunting treasure in all of the wrong places, for many, the treasure that they're really hunting, I mean, for some without even realizing it, is eternal life. Now, here's the wonderful thing about that treasure. It's free, and everyone can have it. In fact, over the last 2,000 years, millions of people have found this treasure and have claimed it for themselves. But even over the course of time, you know, its wealth hasn't been depleted one bit. I mean, there's as much of that treasure today as there's ever been. There is an ample supply for anyone and everyone who desires it. And of course, I'm talking about the salvation and eternal life that's found in Jesus Christ. Quite simply, the greatest treasure ever known to mankind. Now, we're looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 this morning. There, 
Paul tells the Philippian Christians to, to rejoice in the Lord, even while surrounded by people who, who twist the truth and who choose to place their confidence purely in themselves instead of God. And Paul says, you know, what really matters is not so much an impressive resume, but the treasure of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. In fact, the big idea behind this week's study is simply this, that joy only comes when we have Christ written all over our resume. Because Christ is the key. And the Bible, well, the Bible is the map that points us towards that heavenly treasure. But there's some things that we need to understand about how we come to possess this treasure that we're all hunting. First of all, our great treasure is, this is number one if you're taking notes, it can't be acquired by good works. Now look at verse one there. Paul's giving us an exhortation there. An exhortation is just a, a fancy preacher word for encouragement. Paul gives us an encouragement there. Note the words there in verse one, in addition. I mean, that basically tells us it's following what he's just told us in chapter two. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. So what's he saying? That they're rejoicing as a safeguard for them as they encounter opposition. He's telling the believers at Philippi to maintain that same joyful spirit that's really been the theme of the whole book. In fact, he just, you remember in, in our studies in chapter 2, he had, he had told them to rejoice with me. Well, he's saying it again now. Apparently, he felt it worth repeating, and he is going to repeat it again in chapter 4. But it's no trouble to him, given the end result that Paul has in mind for them. But then notice that his, his tone changes somewhat in verse 2. Yes, Paul gives an exhortation, but then Paul gives an admonition. Paul issues a warning there in verses two through four. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. Now, this is a strong warning to the Philippian believers to watch out for these folks called the Judaizers. Now, who are the Judaizers? Well, very simply, these were Jews in the first century who professed to be Christians, but they had attempted to impose the Jewish way of life with all of its customs and traditions on the Gentile Christians. And one of the specific things that the Judaizers insisted on is that Gentile Christians could only be saved by first submitting to circumcision, which, you know, if you grew up going to Sunday school, you know what that was, that in the old covenant with God, it was a symbol of God's people being set apart for him. But I want you to notice three times in verse two, Paul says, watch out for Watch out for, watch out for. Uh, in other words, he's, he's making a very strong warning to beware, beware, beware of this heresy. And his warning, it's made even more emphatic by the use of the word dog. When Paul calls these false teachers dogs, these dogs, Paul says, 
are the evil workers, the mutilators of the flesh, he says. Now, dogs was a very common word that Gentiles would use as kind of a slur uh, against Jews. It was used in a derogatory manner. You see, dogs were not loved in that culture the way it is at ours. They are at ours. To, to the Jews, a dog was an unclean animal. He was a scavenger that roamed the streets and, and ate whatever he could find. So by calling them dogs, what Paul was saying was, he, he's calling them spiritual dogs because they were spiritual scavengers. They worked just as hard to make a convert to their heresy as the literal dogs did to find a scrap of discarded food. So really what Paul's rebuking here is the doctrine of salvation by grace plus works, which is heresy. He's reminding them that the treasure of our salvation can't be acquired by good works. Now, Paul dealt with this problem pretty extensively in the book of Galatians when he was speaking to the Galatian Christians, declaring to them in no uncertain terms that no works were necessary for salvation including Jewish rituals like circumcision, that Christ plus nothing equals everything. For you are saved by grace through faith. And that's not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre prepared ahead of time for us to do. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. What he's saying is we're saved for good works, not by works. On All Hallows' Eve in the year 1517, a young monk named Martin Luther, posted a document at Wittenberg Castle that was meant to address needed reform in the corrupt church of the day, not realizing that this would spark a spiritual revolution that would literally change the world. I mean, were it not for what he did that day, there would be no such thing as Baptists or Methodists or Lutherans or Presbyterians or Episcopals. They would not exist. Now, before Martin Luther was saved, he saw God as an angry judge who had passed a sentence of death upon sinners. And Luther longed to be free from the heavy weight of guilt and the condemnation that he carried. And so he turned to the church and all of its sacraments, hoping to earn the salvation he so desperately wanted. Luther became a monk, fasting often, spending great amounts of time in prayer, and obsessed with his own sin, Luther frequently inflicted, inflicted rather physical punishment on his own body. And he went to confession so often that other monks would hide in embarrassment when they saw Luther coming. I mean, he would spend long hour after hour in the confessional confessing any and every sin he could possibly think of. And still he found no peace. But the great treasure Luther couldn't obtain by his good works, he would uncover in his exploration of the book of Romans. Luther discovered Romans 1.17, which says the righteous will live by faith. 
And what an eye-opener that was for him. So salvation doesn't come through the church? It doesn't come from the observance of all the sacraments? No, Martin, it doesn't. It only comes through faith in Jesus. And Luther saw for the first time that salvation was by grace alone, that all of his attempts to earn salvation, all his good works were for nothing. And throwing himself on the grace of God, Luther was saved. He was set free from the church's legalism. And his writings gave birth to the Protestant Reformation, sending human history on a totally new course of discovery. Luther came to realize that not only is the great treasure we're hunting not acquired by good works, but also that great treasure, number two, can't be earned by personal merit. Let's pick up at the end of verse 4. Paul's telling the Philippians that if anyone could actually be saved by personal merit, he would certainly qualify. It says in verse 4, If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. You see, Paul had a personal pedigree that was first class by Jewish standards. So Paul listed here these personal merits that surely, surely would have qualified him to receive the grace of God if, in fact, that grace could be received by merit. But it's not. But listen to his qualifications here. The first one, Paul's relationship to the nation. Verse 5 says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, now, Gentiles, male Gentiles that would convert to Judaism, they would be circumcised as adults, which is one of the reasons why Paul called the Judaizers the mutilators of the flesh. Uh, but Jews, as babies, you know, were circumcised on their eighth day of life. Well, here's Paul a pure Israelite of the nation of Israel. As one Bible scholar put it, Paul came from the original stock of Jacob, whose covenant name was Israel. While continuing to stack higher his list of personal merits that would have qualified him for the grace of God, if it could actually be acquired by merit, Paul added of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin, uh, as most of you know, he was the son of Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, the only son born to Jacob in Israel. Tribe of Benjamin actually gave Israel its first king, King Saul. Benjamin was the most honored tribe in battle. And Benjamin alone remained faithful to Judah and to the Davidic throne when the kingdom was divided following Solomon's death. And so being a descendant of Benjamin, that was a proud heritage. It says in verse 5, Paul was also a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Paul came from Hebrew parents who bore all of the characteristic qualities in Jewish language and custom, being very distinct from the, the Hellenistic or the, the Greek-influenced Jews. Now, Paul was very well-educated, so he knew Hebrew, he knew Aramaic, he knew Greek, 
But he hadn't forsaken the Hebrew language and customs of the people for those of the Greeks. And so those personal merits listed by Paul had come to him through his, his heritage. But there's a second set of qualifications Paul could have claimed, and that had to do with Paul's relationship to the law. Paul's time as a Pharisee gave him a very impressive pedigree within Judaism. As a Pharisee, Paul had not only revered the Mosaic law, the, the Torah, but he was a strict observer of it. And that's why he said in verse 6, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, he was blameless. In fact, one commentary notes that, that Paul knew and practiced all of the rules of the rabbis. A marvelous record, scoring a 100 in Judaism. <laughs> he was part of a proud religious heritage. Paul's father was a Pharisee. Paul had studied in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, a revered rabbi, one of Israel's finest. So Paul, you know, he, he could have bragged about his Hebrew heritage or his religious pedigree as a Pharisee. See, then we also notice here in verse 6, Paul's relationship to enemies, specifically the enemies of Judaism. I mean, it was Paul's passion once upon a time to protect the Mosaic law, and that drove him to become a persecutor of the church. You'll recall from your studies in the book of Acts, he was among those who executed Stephen, Acts chapters 7 and 8, which means at the very worst, Paul was a murderer. At the very best, at least a, an accomplice to murder. I mean, that's how zealous he was about Judaism and about the law. And so before Paul was saved, he was the persecutor. But after he was saved, he became the persecuted. Remember, he's writing us this letter from prison. Now, several years ago, using Ancestry.com, I traced my, fa my, my dad's, the, the family line on my dad's side all the way back to, to England in the year 1650 to an Anglican named John Chaffin. Okay, so using that as, a, as, a, as an example, if we were to take what Paul is saying here and to put it into a, into a 21st century context, it would, what he's saying would be like me saying something like, well, I'm an, I'm an Englishman of England, the, the son of an Englishman of the clan Chaffin. I was educated by the finest instructors at Oxford, where I amassed great knowledge in my studies of law and religion, graduating summa cum laude. That was followed by a distinguished career in prosecuting lawbreakers. Now, you know, for some people, that would make for a really impressive resume. But you know what Paul would say to that? Whoopity doo! So what? You see, after listing all of his personal merits, Paul quickly points out that none of these actually brought him the treasure of God's grace in Jesus Christ. So as far as salvation was concerned, they were utterly worthless. But you see, the great treasure we're hunting, number three, is worth any cost. 
Let's pick up at verse 7. Verses 7 and 8 say this, But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. You see, once upon a time, Paul valued his personal resume. He counted his heritage and his merits like, like a miser listening to the clink of every piece of gold. But you see, something changed. Paul met Jesus on that Damascus road and it forever altered his life. His values were different. He found infinite worth in Jesus Christ. And that was something that was, he was willing to give up everything for. Okay, so let's, let's zero in on that for a minute. Let's talk about, first of all, Paul's losses. Verse 7, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ, because of Jesus. Paul's personal ledger of, of assets and liabilities were turned completely upside down. But I want you to look at the beginning of verse 8. Those introductory words there, three words. More than that. More than that, he says. Now, in, in the Greek, it's kind of interesting because those three words in the English are made up of five word particles in the Greek, which could literally be translated as, yes, indeed, therefore, at last, even. So he starts off verse 8 by saying, yes, indeed, therefore, at last, even. He's dramatically piled these articles on top of one another. And so the English translation loses a little bit of its oomph. But he's so eager to emphasize his point that Paul says, more than that. I, I mean, it's kind of like, remember all those infomercials you used to see on TV? But wait, there's more. If you act now, you also get the Ginsu knives, the Sham Wow, and the extra strength flex steel. Operators are standing by. More than that, he says, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Paul considered everything a loss, especially that stuff from his former life. Everything about that. All the stuff that he once held so dear, the Jewish heritage, the religious pedigree, the zeal of his convictions. Paul concludes that his relationship with Christ is far far above them in importance in every way, shape, and form possible. So much so that he has discarded them as worthless dung. I mean, it's like he's saying, hey, you know all that stuff before that made me feel like a celebrity walk star? Well, you know what? That's just a big pile of, of, of metal muffins, cow plop. Horse hockey compared to the amazing and joyful life that I have in Jesus Christ. Paul traded in his old life for a new one. And look what he got. 
Let's look at verses 8 through 11. Let's talk about Paul's gains. First thing Paul acquired was the knowledge of Christ. He says in verse 8, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That is to Paul, life's greatest treasure. Now compared to all that stuff that he learned from, about God from Gamaliel and from others, you know, Paul's knowledge of Christ himself was of superior worth. He looked back over his experience with Jesus and he confesses joyfully that everything he sacrificed in order to receive it was, was worth it. But we need to understand something, church. Th there's a huge difference between knowing about Christ and actually knowing Christ. See, Paul had acquired the personal knowledge that actually comes from a relationship with Christ. But there's something else here that Paul acquired. That's the righteousness of Christ. Paul had surrendered the, the, the prideful, the, the false self-righteousness of his past life so that I may gain Christ, he says in verse 8, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. And you know something about that, that righteousness of Jesus? It's not only a new relationship with God by faith in Jesus. It's a totally new kind of existence, y'all. It's a new quality of life, one that changes us. It changes the way we think and feel and speak and, and act. It's, and it's the product of Christ's victory over sin and death. And because of that, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. As Paul would write later, uh, it's imputed to us. It's an accounting term. It's basically like saying Jesus' righteousness has been deposited into our life's account. And that was Paul's to receive as a gift of God's grace. Oh, but wait, there's more. There's something else Paul gained. That's the fellowship of Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now, this fellowship with Christ that Paul's describing here, that was a personal experience. My goal is to know him, he says, as Paul walked with Christ and prayed and obeyed his will and sought to glorify his name. You know, when Paul was living under the Mosaic law, all he had was just a strict set of rules. But now, in Christ, he's got a friend. He's got a master. He's got a, a constant companion. It was a personal experience. Oh, but get this, it was also a powerful experience. To know the power of his resurrection, Paul said. Paul wanted to experience the same caliber of spiritual power that had resurrected Jesus, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, Paul wanted to see at work in his own life. He wanted to know, as he said in Ephesians 1.19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. 
understanding, as he wrote in Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Paul's fellowship with Christ was both a personal and a powerful experience, but let's be honest, it was also a painful experience to know the fellowship of his sufferings, Paul would write. Now, Paul knew that it was a privilege to suffer for Christ, and he already addressed that in Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 through 30. We've discussed that at length. In fact, suffering had been part of Paul's experience, really from the get-go, all the way back to Acts chapter 9 and his conversion on that road to Damascus. And so we need to understand something, church. As we grow in our knowledge of Christ and our experience of his power, we need to prepare. You see, if you are truly making a difference for the kingdom of God, you will experience the attack of the enemy. Paul had been a persecutor at one time, but then he learned what it was like to be the persecuted. But understand what he's saying here. It is totally worth it. Christ is worth it. For Paul, gaining Christ was also a practical experience. Being conformed to his death, he would say in verse 10. See, Paul was able to live for Christ because he had died to self. And that once proud Paul that was described in verses 4 through 6, he no longer exists. Here's the humble yet supremely confident Paul, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead, he says in verse 11. Paul means that he too would be raised from the dead, but, but not just the bodily resurrection in the last day at the return of Christ. I think Paul also has in mind here a spiritual resurrection. His old self has died. A new man has been raised to walk in newness of life, as he would write in, in uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And Paul summarized this whole experience in Galatians 2.20, when he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Folks, Paul has very eloquently told us in these verses that the greatest treasure of life is to know Christ and the salvation that he brings. And all of that stuff on his resume from his old life, stuff that he once might have boasted about, man, that's meaningless. It's, it's utterly worthless. This, the knowledge of Christ, is a treasure of supreme value. And in that, we find inescapable Joy. Knowing Christ is worth whatever sacrifice it costs us. Absolutely nothing is more desirable, more valuable than this, because this is a treasure that's far, far greater in value, you know, than, than discovering some gold-laden Spanish galleon, you know, or, or winning the multi-state Powerball or the, the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, for Paul and for us, having Jesus 
is life's greatest treasure. He's what our lives are all about, y'all. And through him, we discover that joy only comes when we've got Christ written all over our resume. Okay, that's all fine and good. How do we take what Paul's saying here and put it to work in our own lives? How do we live it out? Let me give you a few starters, some action steps. Here's the first one. Prioritize. Take a hard look at your life. Do some self-reflection and just examine your life to see if you're putting confidence in all the wrong things. Like Paul, you know, maybe like your, your family qualifications or your, your uh, I'm sorry, your family heritage or your personal qualifications. In other words, make sure that, that Jesus is stamped across the top of your resume. So prioritize, or maybe more to the point, reprioritize. And then pray. Pray and ask God's help to maintain your focus, to maintain your priorities, to help you keep the main thing the main thing to help you keep Christ as the number one priority in your life. And when he reveals those things to you, be willing to trade in lesser treasures that would distract you from him. Now here's the third one. Praise. Be very deliberate, be very intentional about thanking God for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Praise Him that your eternal treasure is secured. And then here's the last one. Present. See, if you're already a Christian, your life already belongs to Him. You are His. You are bought with the price, and that's the precious blood of Jesus. You belong to him. Your life is his. So present your whole self, present your whole life to him as a living sacrifice, as Paul would say in Romans 12.1. Now, if you've never trusted Christ for his eternal treasure, why not present your heart and life to him today and to just ask him to forgive you of your sin and to grant you his salvation? It's simply life's greatest treasure. Now, concerning that great treasure, an unknown poet once wrote this. He said, I've tried in vain a thousand ways, my fears to quell, my hopes to raise. All I need, the Bible says, is Jesus. My soul is night, my heart is steel. I cannot see, I cannot feel. For light, for life, I must appeal to Jesus. Though some will mock and some will blame, in spite of fear and in spite of shame, I'll go to him because his name is Jesus. He dies, he lives, he reigns, he pleads. There's love in all his words and deeds. And all a guilty sinner needs is Jesus. Folks, is Jesus the greatest treasure that you're seeking? Because all other treasures, they pale in comparison. Now, here's the greatest thing about that treasure. 
The greatest thing about that treasure is it's a gift. Paul said in Romans 6, 23, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. You can't earn the treasure that you've been hunting, but that's okay. You don't have to because God has gift wrapped it for you. You see, now it's up to you to simply choose to accept it. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.